0: This is Cale Clark. Welcome back to the Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio apps. We continue our look at St. Paul's letter to the Romans. Can you handle the truth? And he's going to really drop a truth bomb on us today in Romans. In fact, this is maybe my favorite part of the whole letter. When he starts talking about Abraham, St. Paul really shows his brilliance. I mean, this is otherworldly stuff. (laughs) I can't wait to break this down with you. But just before we do that, just before we get into chapter 4 of Romans, I want to just say one more word (laughs) about what we were talking about in the last episode, really focusing on chapter 3, verse 28. And this was, again, one of the great verses that uh, caused so much consternation in the 16th century and really was at the heart of many debates between Catholics and Protestants as the church was rent asunder. And in Romans 3.28, we read these words, For we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And as we mentioned last time, in this verse, this is one of the places where Martin Luther inserted the word alone in his German translation of Romans. So he has this verse as, For we hold that a man is justified by faith alone alone apart from works of the law. And, and as I said, even his own students complained about this. But he said Dr. Luther would have it so. End of discussion. So he's essentially putting himself above the Holy Spirit. He's putting himself above St. Paul. But the Holy Spirit, of course, being uh, the primary author of Scripture, Paul being the instrumental author. But this is not what Paul wrote. And the one time in the New Testament where it uses that term faith alone, of course, is in James 2.24, where James writes, and of course, he is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And of course, he's talking about Father Abraham. So it's very key and very apropos because of what we're going to say in just a few minutes. But one thing I wanted to add, which we kind of ran out of time in the last episode, was In Scott Hahn's commentary on Romans, he shows that this this type of misunderstanding of Paul, this idea that one can simply get by on faith alone, it wasn't new to Martin Luther. People used to have these ideas in the early centuries of the church as well, but luminaries such as Origen, such as St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Augustine, they rebuked these theories. So Hahn has some very, very helpful quotes from these guys, and I wanted to share them with you because they're really powerful. Now, Origen of Alexandria, he was a favorite of Pope Benedict XVI. In fact, uh, Pope Benedict had, I believe, at least one Wednesday audience talk dedicated to Origen. Now, he wasn't canonized, Origen of Alexandria. He lived from uh, 185 to 254 AD, so late 2nd, early 3rd century. But he was a brilliant scholar, and he he was kind of an ascetic as well. But he had some ideas that maybe were a little off kilter but but the whole package, it's not to be thrown out, the baby with the bathwater. And like I said, Benedict loved this guy. Here's what he said about this, by the way, in his commentary on Romans. This is Origin of Alexandria. He said, quote, Let believers be edified so as not to entertain the thought that because they believe, this alone can suffice for them. On the contrary, They should know that God's righteous judgment pays back to each one according to his own works, end of quote. Okay, so origin says belief alone is not enough. And Paul says this too, as we know, way back in Romans chapter two, what does he say? Starting with verse six, he will render, God will render to every man according to his works or his deeds. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are factious and do not obey the truth, but obey wickedness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for every one who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. And that's Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. All right, so let's move on through history a little bit. Let's talk about St. Augustine. What did he say about this topic? Now, St. Augustine is kind of a, a darling of both Catholics and Protestants. Uh, they both find evidence, you know, he, of course he was Catholic, but many Protestants think he kind of backs up their theology. And it's interesting because um, Protestants tend to call St. Augustine Saint Augustine it's not it's not a blanket statement but I've noticed that that's usually the case where Catholics refer to him as Saint Augustine having said that um, Augustine of Hippo of course uh, not only a saint but a doctor of the church lived from 354 ad to 430 a d now let, let's let's see what he says here about this this whole idea of whether belief alone is enough faith alone is enough let's see this he says in a quote, and by the way, he's talking here. This is his, his, uh, his uh, in Augustine's writing called On Faith and Works. And he said, quote, We feel that we should advise the faithful that they would endanger the salvation of their souls if they acted on the false assurance that faith alone is sufficient for salvation or that they need not perform good works to be saved. When St. Paul says, therefore, that man is justified by faith and not by observance of the law, he does not mean that good works are not necessary, or that it is enough to receive and profess the faith and no more. What he means, rather, and what he wants us to understand, is that man is justified by faith even if he has not previously performed any works of the law. End of quote. And this is exactly the point, by the way, that St. Paul is about to make when it comes to Abraham that a person is justified by faith, even if he has not previously performed any works of the law. But he's talking about that initial justification, how we get right with God to start off with. But then afterwards, our deeds do matter because they show that we're continuing to partner with God, that our faith is working out, as it were the way that we live our life. Okay, one more. One more. Let's go with the angelic doctor of the church, of course, St. Thomas Aquinas, who was operational from 1225 AD when he was born to 1274. He died at the very young age of only 49. It's incredible. It's staggering what he accomplished in his short life. If you want to get a little biography of St. Thomas Aquinas, read The Dumb Ox by G.K. Chesterton. Now, why is he called The Dumb Ox? Well, read the book. (laughs) But it's a fantastic little book on Aquinas. And even Aquinas scholars were amazed that Chesterton was able to pull that off in such a short, slim volume, considering that wasn't really his area of expertise, but he did such a good job at capturing the essence of his teaching. Okay, what does St. Thomas Aquinas say about this? Quote, some have been frequently deceived about sinning with impunity believing that faith alone is sufficient for salvation, according to John eleven twenty six, 26, which says, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, just to, just to interject here, uh, John eleven twenty six 26 is where Jesus is speaking to Martha just before he raises her brother Lazarus from the dead. It's a resuscitation, not a resurrection, but having said that, still pretty stupendous. And, he, and Jesus says to her, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, another thing we should point out here, too, when it, when it comes to belief, the word believe in the New Testament does not mean to intellectually assent to something. Okay, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. Jesus is risen from the dead. Okay, I, I buy that. I intellectually know that. That's not what it means. Believing goes beyond this. It means to become obedient to. It's not just knowing it. It's becoming obedient to it. And that's why in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, when Jesus kicks off his, his earthly ministry, the first thing he says when he starts preaching is, Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe. That means to become obedient to. Repent and become obedient to the gospel. So that's really what it's all about. Okay, so... Again, Aquinas says this, some, some people have been deceived about sinning with impunity. They think they can just kind of do whatever they want. Believing that faith alone is sufficient for salvation, according to John eleven twenty six, Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. St. Thomas goes on to say, others believing they will be saved solely by Christ's sacraments. On account of what is said in Mark chapter 16, verse 16. He that believes and is baptized will be saved. And John chapter 6, verse 54 Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will have eternal life. Still, others suppose that they can sin with impunity on account of the works of mercy that they perform. Inasmuch as it says in Luke chapter 11, verse 41, Give alms for those things which are within you, and behold, everything is clean for you. But they do not understand that all these things are of no benefit without charity. For it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 2 and 3, If I have all faith, if I give away all I have to the poor, and I have not charity, I gain nothing. That's an extremely powerful quote from St. Thomas Aquinas. Now, that particular quote was from his commentary on 1 Corinthians. But it has a lot to do with what St. Paul is talking about here. And we can see this even happening today. Those those situations that St. Thomas Aquinas mentions is exactly what people do, both inside and outside of the Catholic Church today. This idea that many people think that faith alone is all you need. Other people think, oh, I've got the sacraments. I'm cool. I'm set. What, is, what did Jesus say in Mark 16, 16? Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Well, the church says you do have to undergo baptism. That, that is true, but not everybody is baptized by water and the Spirit in the sacrament of baptism. Some are baptized with the baptism of blood, that is martyrdom, and some have baptism of desire. But you can't. you need some sort of baptism to get into eternal life, for sure. But some people think the fact that they've received baptism, that their names are enrolled, they've got the baptismal certificate, That's a free ticket to heaven, not the case. Not the case. It has to be ratified. The catechism speaks of people who have the indelible mark of baptism on their eternal soul who will be in hell because they did not remain obedient to Christ. They didn't stay in a state of grace. And when they fell out of a state of grace, they didn't get back into it with the sacrament of confession. And this last example that St. Thomas gives, how often do we see this, this idea that all you need is sort of social justice? Give alms. I give to the poor. I I work. I work at a at a, at a food bank. I, I I help homeless people on the streets. That's 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 fantastic. That is great stuff. Like keep doing it by all means. But that you cannot earn your way into heaven with these types of deeds. It's important that your deeds do ratify your faith. But you can't have that alone. It, it, you need faith and. Deeds, indeed, indeed we do, indeed we do, and that's why Saint Thomas says, quoting Saint Paul again: If I have all faith, if I give away all I have to the poor, and I have not charity, I gain nothing. Charity—it's another word for love—and of course we know that love is an action verb. One of the things that Saint Paul says again in another place, and I hate to skip around all these writings of Saint Paul, but it's tough not to sometimes. In Galatians chapter five, verse six, he says the only thing that counts is faith working itself out through love. Faith working through love. Galatians chapter five, verse six. So I, I just want to share those quotes with you because they, um, they're really powerful in terms of, of, of proper understanding of what St. Paul is writing here. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. This is our series on Romans. Can you handle the truth? Okay. Now, what's the, what's the upshot of all of this? When we look at what he says here, Paul is setting us up for what he's going to talk about now in chapter 4, where he says, is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. And then verse 30 of chapter 3 says, God is one. And he will justify the circumcised, that's the Jews on the ground of their faith, and the uncircumcised, and that's a representative term for all the Gentiles, through their faith. Okay, that's really important because, and again, I hate to do this because we should kind of stick to Romans here, but in Ephesians, St. Paul says there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. So he And he talks about it in Ephesians 2, the breaking down of the wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. And there was a literal wall of hostility between, because in the temple in Jerusalem, there was a famous um, inscription, you can see it when you go to the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, they have the original there. The inscription that says the Gentiles can't pass this point, because if they do, it's on pain of death. There's the court of the Gentiles, and you couldn't go beyond that. But in the church, you know, a lot of people are looking for a third temple to be built. Well, the third temple has already come, and it's the temple of the body of Jesus Christ. The church, the mystical body of Jesus Christ. Yes, his resurrected body. God kind of rebuilt it, if you will, through the resurrection but also that this construction of the mystical body of Christ, the church, with living stones, that's you and me. And Paul says he's broken down this wall, this dividing wall. We are one people now in the church. And, and he's going to use the most incredible argument to prove this with Father Abraham. All right, so let's 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 read this really quickly. And we'll talk about it as much as we can, and then we'll continue on next time. All right, so. In chapter 4 of Romans, we see see this. St. Paul writes, What then shall we say about Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? And I've always wondered whether that's a pun on uh, on, on circumcision, our father according to the flesh, because Abraham famously, of course, was the first to receive the covenant of circumcision in Genesis 17. Verse 2, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Or some t- translations might say, it was credited to him as righteousness. Verse 4 Now to one who works, his wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as his due. And to one who does not work, But trust him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. So also David pronounces a blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not reckon his sin. Is this blessing pronounced only upon the circumcised or also upon the uncircumcised? We say that faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received circumcision as a sign or seal of the righteousness which he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised and who thus have righteousness reckoned to them. And likewise, the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also follow the example of the faith which our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Let's stop there for a second. I'm telling you, this is an absolutely brilliant argument from Rabbi Paul. This is absolutely incredible. Paul shows that Abraham was made right with God without circumcision. And thus, he is the father in faith of all people, the Jews and the Gentiles. And by the way, that was God's plan all along. Because God changed Abram's name name to Abraham, which... It went from the name Father to Father of a multitude or Father of many nations because God's plan was always to reach all people, all the Gentiles, and bring them into his one people. Now, it took a long time to work that out through salvation history, but that was always the play from Almighty God. So this is just incredible stuff from St. Paul. So we're going to talk more about this in the next episode. And it's so exciting, but we've got to leave it here because we've run out of time. I don't like to give out homework and there'll be no checking, no exam or anything except for that great exam we all have to have at the end of our life. But if you want some background on this, go to the book of Genesis and go through Genesis chapters 12 through 17. It'll give you some good background on this, good spiritual reading for you too. And you can even check out the episodes of the Genesis series on the Relevant Radio archives to help you with that as well. But we'll reconvene in the next episode of the Faith Explained to talk more about this. This is so exciting, and I'm so glad to be doing this with you, St. Paul's Letter to the Romans. But right now, let's open up the Faith Explained Q&A mailbag. Let's open up the Faith Explained Q&A mailbag, shall we? And you can, by the way, get your question to me by sending me an email. And the address is faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. And you can also find me on the X app. My handle is at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E Clark with an E. And uh, this message, uh, this question comes to me via email from Brenda listening in Phoenix, Arizona on Relevant Radio 102.9 FM, one of our great FM stations in the United States. And here's her question. Uh, She writes, Hello, Cale. My husband was baptized as an Episcopalian, and I was baptized Lutheran. We were married at Stadium Vineyard Christian Fellowship. We've told our story many times before receiving the Catholic sacraments. Ten years later, we are now seeking the sacrament of marriage. Our priest continues to give us communion. Our friends who know us are confused. Why do we have to take all these premarital classes? Catholics who do not know us well respond with, you evil, full of sin sinners. (laughs) Why are Catholics so mean saying we are living in sin? Thank you. Signed, Brenda. Okay, Brenda, I I have to tell you, I I want you to write me a follow-up email here because I'm a little confused by this email as well. Uh, There's a lot of information that I'm missing here. Now, you said that your husband was baptized as an Episcopalian. Now, for those that don't know, the Episcopalian communion is what they call the Anglican communion or the Anglican church. is not really a church because they don't have valid sacraments, but you know what I'm talking about. And that's what the Anglican church is called in the United States, the Episcopalian church. And uh, Brenda says that she was baptized as a Lutheran. So if they're both valid baptisms here. Then we have actually a valid sacramental marriage already, even before you guys came into the Catholic Church. so I, I, i'm I'm a little bit confused here. This is how somebody becomes a Christian, by the way. It's through baptism. It's not by simply believing something about Jesus, right? In the letter of James, it talks about even the demons knowing. Who Jesus really is, and they shudder; they're scared. I mean, they know who he is and they know the power he's got, but they're still demons. They're not—they're not good angels because they've rejected him. And so, it's not just believing in Christ; it's being baptized. That's how you actually formally enter the church. Those who believe but are not yet baptized, we call them catechumens. They're in the catechumenate. Some of them might be in the RCIA program, which is kind of the modern version of that. So, if uh, if a couple is coming into the Catholic Church from a Protestant background, And they're both validly baptized, that is, they're baptized with water and in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and they are married. We're presuming that that's a valid baptism and a valid sacramental marriage, because a sacramental marriage is between two baptized persons. There can also be valid natural marriages as well, so we'll get into that in in just a second. So here's some some things that you need to know about this, if you're listening, just uh, in general. Marriages between non-Catholics, so for example, there might be um, a Jewish couple that, that are married um, or or a Muslim couple that are married or, uh, you know, even even uh, someone from another religion that, that, that these people are married, the husband and wife, they, they want to become Catholic we we even though it's they're not baptized we do assume that they are valid natural marriages okay so that's different from a sacramental marriages from a sacramental marriage because that only can exist again between a baptized man and a baptized woman so as long as there's no impediment to the marriage as 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 in they're actually married to somebody else they married somebody else validly first and they didn't tell you about that uh, well, that's a problem. We're assuming that you know you're, you're not too close in relations or something like that. We're assuming that that these marriages are valid when these people come into the Catholic Church. Now that's a different situation from when a spouse is Catholic and the other and the other spouse is not Catholic. That's that's a different situation. That's called a mixed marriage. But we're not going to talk about that right now. That gets, that gets us down a, a a bit of a rabbit hole there. But I, I'm confused, Brenda, about a couple things in your question. I don't the question I have is, were you formally received into the Catholic Church, you and your husband? because you said that you've been receiving the Catholic sacraments. And you also said, our priest continues to give us communion. And if that's the case, if you've been formally received already into the Catholic Church, let's say at the Easter Vigil one time, then you're Catholic. And there's no problem with you receiving sacraments like the Eucharist, assuming you're well disposed to receive them. You're in a state of grace. Uh, and if you're not in a state of grace, you need the sacrament of confession, right? But, but if, you're, if you're not yet Catholic, then the priest should not be giving you the Eucharist until you formally enter the Catholic Church. So I'm a little bit confused because I don't have all the information, Brenda. So again, you can, you can write me back. You can email me back with the rest. You also say that you're taking premarital classes and i'm not quite sure why that is so sometimes uh if if a non catholic couple who have a valid marriage uh supernatural or natural they're, they're coming into the catholic church they when they're baptized their their marriage is, is sort of supernaturalized in a certain sense but sometimes maybe people don't get the the training in marriage that they ought to have they, they didn't get enough preparation for marriage so sometimes the priest will ask them to maybe take some classes on what the sacrament of marriage is all about so that could be what's going on with you um but i'm also kind of wondering because you you say that some catholics who don't know you well are saying you evil full of sin sinners to you and they're also saying that you're living in sin well like i said if your marriage is valid Sacramental, sacramentally or naturally, you're not living in sin. So I, I don't know why they would say that. So I think, I think I'm think i missing some information about this. Now, in terms of these uh, Catholics that you know who are saying these things to you, I, I would say to them, uh, I don't know if that's the approach, if you want to get people on your side saying you evil, full of sin, sinners. Now, sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. Um John the Baptist, of course, that's that's essentially what he said to the Pharisees. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come. It's almost like he wants the hammer to be dropped on them in a certain sense. what it seems like. But no, it's, it's strong medicine. Of course, he wants them to be saved as well. And, and telling people the truth sometimes uh, in a way that kind of grabs their attention, that does get certain people to repent for sure. Everybody's different. Everybody has a key that unlocks their heart. and Sometimes it's not the gentle turning of the key to open the door. Sometimes it's kicking the door down, like, like John the Baptist. Oh, you evil, full of sin sinner. Oh, but that might actually work with some people as a cold approach. Some people need a, a bit more of a pat on the back than a kick in the pants. But I, I would s- simply say this, uh, Brenda, write me back, tell me some more information about your situation. And then maybe I can answer your question a little bit better. But I hope that what I did say was helpful information for you about how the church looks at marriages of those who are coming into the church and for those listening, hopefully that was enlightening to you. And, and anybody else listening today can write in to me as well. The email address is faith at relevantradio.com. I'll try to answer your question as best I can. Find me on the X app at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. And I'll see you in the next episode of The Faith Explained. You can also catch me every day, 5 p.m. Central, right here on Relevant Radio, The Kale Clark Show. God bless you and talk to you soon.